Amen. If you will, open your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, where we will find the reading for our sermon this evening. Three verses, three openings in the Gospel of John, the first from chapter 1, the second from chapter 3, the third from chapter 12. Brief readings from John 1, John 3, and then John chapter 12 to introduce our theme this evening. Before we read God's word, let's bow and ask his blessing. O gracious Father, at the end of the Lord's day, a day of joy and feasting for your people, though our bodies and minds may be tired, nevertheless our spirits soar. We are full of hope and joy because of Christ, the application of his work to our hearts and souls by your spirit, and the received promises of your word bless us that that joy might be strengthened, that hope might increase, that courage and comfort might overflow and abound in and among your people and through your church, that it might spill over even to our neighbors, our community, and this world. Bless us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 29, speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now from chapter 3, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. A well-known verse followed perhaps by a less-known verse. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then from John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 31 And 32, our Lord Jesus himself is speaking and he says, Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Listen again. To these words, let them sink into your ears. This is the word of God that we've just heard, read. Do we believe it? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's really too bad that didn't work out. It was, after all, a beautiful idea, but evidently it was not possible Because if Christians can agree on anything, it's that Jesus' coming did not save the world, but will ultimately and finally result in its condemnation, right? All of these promises that we've just read and dozens of others like them may be only a pipe dream in the Word of God. What I want to do this evening is talk to you about Jesus as the Savior of the world And this is a sermon that is intended to encourage us to embrace a more optimistic outlook, even in our eschatology. 
And I want to say right up front a very important disclaimer. I am not tonight advocating or requiring of anyone that they adopt a particular eschatological position. Because everything that I'm going to say tonight, every passage that we're going to read, can and should be, I think, embraced by amillennialists and postmillennialists and historic premillennialists. And we are focusing tonight on our perspective rather than on a particular doctrinal position. And that is not to say that one's position is unimportant. It is important, but that's something really that your pastor, your elders need to address with you. My concern is to suggest that regardless of our position on the end times, our perspective ought to be more aligned than it usually is. Because whether you are an amillennialist, or a premillennialist, or a postmillennialist, or you are just confused and have no idea what any of those terms mean, whatever you are, if you are a Christian, you should not be a pessimillennialist. And in this lesson, I want to encourage you to think carefully and with some excitement about these promises regarding the salvation of the world. Because that is, after all, what the Bible says Jesus came to do. It says he came to save the world. Now, of course, we know that it doesn't really mean he will save the world. World doesn't really mean world. It means remnant, a very, very small remnant, mostly in Reformed churches, of course. And save here doesn't really mean save either. Save, in this case, must mean something like judge, condemn, and destroy, Or at least we're pretty sure that's what the original text would say if we could read it in Greek. Now that characterization of how we interpret our way out of these promises may seem comical, but is it really so different than how many Christians do think and what many Christians do say about these kind of issues? We may not say it quite that blatantly, of course, but are we really saying something very different? when we qualify and caveat our way out of these promises so that in the end we finally conclude, I guess Jesus didn't come to save the world after all. My proposition tonight is very simple and it is this. The Bible says Jesus came to save the world and he has. That, that's my thesis. He has done everything necessary to ensure and secure the salvation of the world in his death and resurrection. And because of this, we can be certain not merely that the world will have an opportunity to be saved, that it could potentially be saved, we can be certain that the world really will be saved. Now let's begin by trying to understand how the word world is used in the Bible. That would take a series of sermons in itself, but let me give you the Cliff Notes version. The standard Greek lexicon for New Testament scholars gives us eight possible definitions of the word for world as it is used in the New Testament. Now, the first two definitions are not relevant for our study tonight, but the other six at least potentially are. They are, first, the sum total of everything here and now, the world, the orderly universe. Second, the sum total of all beings above the level of the animals. Third, planet Earth as a place of inhabitation. Fourth, humanity in general. Fifth, the system of human existence 
in its many aspects. And sixth, the collective aspect of an entity, the totality or the sum of something, could be described as the world. Now, we learned, most of us, I think, in junior high grammar, that words do not have meaning, strictly speaking. And I hope you will not run from the room screaming, thinking that the elders have inadvertently invited a postmodernist to uh, take the pulpit tonight. That's not what we're saying at all. But, but in junior high grammar, we learned that a word may mean any number of different things, depending upon the context in which it is used. See, words don't have meanings. Words have semantic range. That's why when you look up a word in the dictionary, you see several possible meanings, and you have to decide how is that word being used in a given text or in a given conversation. When we put a word in context, it's no longer a word, it's a term. Terms have meaning. Terms do signify specific things. Words have semantic range or domain. The question is, what is the significance of this word, world, in the passages that we're looking at tonight? Well, sometimes world is used in the New Testament in a way that emphasizes people. The world as the people that live in this world. Sometimes it is used to emphasize evil For example, John says, do not love the world, neither the things in the world. We see pretty clearly the connotation of its use there. Sometimes it is used in a way that emphasizes the created universe, which is much larger than just the human beings that inhabit the planet. Now, these are not radically different or disconnected meanings. I don't want you to walk away thinking that what we're saying is that any given word could mean potentially anything. Obviously not. But it could mean a number of different things depending on the context. And we have to pay attention to the context and make careful distinctions. For example, if you say John 3.16 means God loves every single person who ever lived on the earth in exactly the same way, well, then you are interpreting the word world in a way that the context just simply will not support. That's not what John 3.16 actually is saying. On the other hand, if you say, John 3.16 means that God loves the elect, all eight of them who belong to my church. Well, then you're not interpreting the passage correctly in that case either. You might be interpreting the word world a little too narrowly in that case. The word world means something other and more than just the elect, but it does not flatten out the distinction that is made in terms of God's covenantal electing and saving love. What I want to do is run through a series of passages from the scriptures. Most of these will be very familiar to you. Not all of them use the word world, but they are all speaking into the same context. Remember that when you're studying something in Scripture, you can't just look up one word in your concordance, find all the places that it's used, and now you know the truth, the sum truth of that theme. Well, no, sometimes the specific word might not be used, but the Bible might speak to that issue in other places by other terms, for example. 
Well, listen to some of these passages, all of which speak of Jesus as Savior of the world in one way or another. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, Reformed preachers will usually explain that in these three passages, the apostles are referring to men of all kinds. That when the Bible says, all men, he desires the salvation of all men, he means both Jews and Gentiles. The rich and the poor, the free and the slave. Every one, all kinds of people, but not every single person. Men from all nations, men from all generations, men without distinction, but not every person without exception. And by the way, I think that when Reformed preachers interpret and expound those three passages in that way, they are exactly right. You need to pay attention to that distinction. It's very important. It's very helpful in properly understanding those kinds of texts. But what I bring those three passages up to say not that our standard approach or our standard explanation to them is in error in some way. It's not. I bring them up so that you can see the juxtaposition, the contrast between those three texts that we are familiar with and know how to explain within the context of Reformed theology, place those in contrast to the three passages we started with. Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the Son of God who did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. What do we do with those texts? Because in these passages, the Bible is saying more than what He says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6, 1 Timothy 4, 8 to 10. It's saying more than just that. Yes, Jesus came to save all kinds of people, of course. Yes, Jesus came to save people from all people groups. Yes, Jesus came to save both Jews and Gentiles. All of those things are true, but the Bible actually says more than just that. Now you may think, well, those whom he saves are part of the world. They are worldly people, and Christ saves them out of the world. And so in that sense, Jesus is saving the world. Well, that too is true, and it's a good point, it's an important point to bear in mind. But our original passages in John 1, John 3, John 12, and many others that could be cited, those passages say more than just that as well. They don't merely claim that Jesus saves worldlings. They don't only say that Jesus saves people out of the world, they very clearly say that Jesus saves the world. 
the world itself, whatever that means, however we are to take that. And that's the difficulty, isn't it? The world itself is being saved by Jesus Christ. And let me say this, before you decide what that means, you need to see that the Bible actually says it. Because here is a challenge. Many people believe in the Bible. Yes, this is the Word of God written, inspired in every word, in every part, speaking with authority to all of life. Jesus is Lord of it all. I believe in the Bible. But the question tonight is not, do you believe in the Bible? Of course you do. You're a member of a Reformed church. The question is not, do you believe in the Bible? The question is, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what the Bible says? Or do we sometimes come to passages and say, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. Maybe that could have been said better. Maybe, with all due respect, the Apostle Paul could have reworked that a little bit more before he went to the publishing house. It says that Jesus came so that the world would be saved through him. You say, Pastor I need to know what that means before I can know whether I believe it or not. No, it's just the opposite. I need to know that I believe whatever it means. And knowing that I am obligated as a child of God to believe it, I need to find out what it means so that I can believe it. Well, let me begin kind of unpacking this mystery a little bit by telling you what I think very clearly the verses do not mean. There are some ways that these verses are interpreted that I think we ought not to accept. Uh, Universalism, for example. Universalism is the heretical idea that someday everyone, including the devil, will be saved. Now that has been held by a small minority of people throughout church history, sadly enough, but it is refuted by so many passages of scripture that, especially in a setting like this, we're not at a public debate, we're in a corporate worship service in a conservative reformed church. I don't even think it's worth taking seriously at a time like this. Suffice it to say, there are one or two verses in the Bible that you could read as teaching universalism if you squint really hard and only look at it with your peripheral vision and refuse to read anything else in the Bible. Then you could say, aha, the Bible teaches universalism. But if you read anything beyond that or look it square in the face, you're just not going to be able to sustain that idea. There are many, many passages that categorically exclude a view of universalism. And if you believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and infallible and authoritative, then universalism is simply not an option. We have to reckon with the fact that some people and some spirits will be eternally condemned. Now, the other way that these verses are incorrectly read is actually very common. In fact, I dare say it is the majority report in the visible church today, certainly in the American church. And that is the view known as Arminianism. Now, it's not important that you know all these theological terms. If you you showed up tonight to church and you say, I have no idea what this guy in the bow tie is talking about. He keeps talking about all these different millennialisms, and now he's talking about Arminianism, and I don't know what any of it means. That's okay. I'm going to tell you what it means. You don't have to know the word. Arminianism is the idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world in the sense that he died for the sins of every person potentially, but not actually or definitively. 
That Jesus' death was general in nature. That he died to establish a blood bank, if you will. And that the Spirit then gives you enough grace not to be saved, but to decide if you want to be saved. And it's up to you. With that work of the Spirit, you are only mostly dead. Not fully dead in Adam, but only mostly dead. And perhaps with just enough breath, you can say, yes, I believe, and then apply to the blood bank for redemption. In other words, Arminians will admit that the Lord, though he desires to save every single person, will not succeed in reaching or accomplishing that desire. Jesus is doing all that he can, but what he can't do is your part. He can't make you cooperate. And you have to choose. And he's wringing his hands, and he's voting for you, and Satan is voting against you, and you get to cast the deciding vote, and God is waiting to see what you will choose. Well, this conclusion seems obvious to many people, but when it is tested by the entire testimony of Scripture, I think we would all say it simply does not hold up. The Bible teaches that man is dead in sin and incapable of doing good, any good at all, apart from grace. The question I like to ask people when I'm doing evangelism or when I'm engaged in kind of polemical theology with friends who are in this Arminian camp, they are my brothers and sisters, but you need to know that Arminians are saved because Calvinism is true. You see, Reformed theology tells us we're not saved because we believe in Reformed theology. We're saved because God is sovereign and Jesus is a savior. He doesn't give us opportunities. He provides righteousness, right? So as I'm, as I'm engaged in conversations like this, one of the things that I like to, to ask is, is believing in Jesus a good thing to do? Does anybody want to say it's not? Does anybody want to say, no, no, believing in Jesus is not a good thing to do. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. And dead men can't do any good. So say the scriptures. Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. The problem is not that they do not do good, it's that they cannot They cannot do anything good because they are dead. They cannot even choose to believe in Christ. And the Lord does not save anyone halfway. He does not provide a half measure of grace to enable the person to choose to believe or not. He provides grace to change the heart, enable faith, and draw the sinner powerfully and inevitably to the Savior whom they now love. But there is one point we need to observe in relation to our lesson that is particularly important in refuting Arminianism. And that is that none of the passages we've read tonight and none of the passages that are printed in your Bible, none of them ever say that Jesus is trying to save the world. None of them say that Jesus hopes to save the world. None of them say Jesus is doing all that he can to save the world and we hope it's going to work out. No, the Bible says that Jesus came to save it and it says decisively that he has and that he will. Whatever these verses mean, they don't mean that every single person will eventually be saved. And they don't mean 
that Jesus is doing his best to save every person, but failing in that effort. But they do mean something. And whether we understand what they mean, we must be willing to say what the Bible says. We should not shrink from affirming biblical language. If someone says Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, and any of us who are truly reformed say, I wouldn't say it like that, we need to check ourselves a little bit and say, but the Holy Spirit said it like that through John the Baptist. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And someone says, I I don't know, brother, if I would say it like that. Oh, but the Holy Spirit said it like that through John, the apostle, in writing the fourth gospel. We need to be willing to affirm biblical language, but be careful to mean by that language what Scripture, in fact, does mean. Jesus came so that the world would be saved through him, and it has been, and it will be. And that doesn't make us Arminians or Universalists. It doesn't make us compromised in any way doctrinally to say that. It simply makes us biblical. Now, I'm trying to be careful tonight, I really am, especially because I'm a guest, but I'm trying to be careful to frame this in a way that permits anyone and everyone who is an Orthodox Christian, anyone with various eschatological convictions, to still recognize and affirm the overall point. There are some conclusions that a person could draw out of these verses that that would depend upon your particular eschatological perspective. And so, for example, a a historic premillennialist, he might say, Jesus is going to save the world in that, in his second coming, he is going to set up a golden millennial kingdom and reign at Jerusalem on the earth for a thousand years, and in that period, the world will be saved. Well, that is a possible interpretation of those. It's not my interpretation, but it is a possible interpretation But that would depend on a particular eschatological view. A post-millennialist might have another take on those verses. An all-millennialist might have another take on those verses. We're trying to stay away from all of that tonight and simply say what all of us should be able to say about these passages. Any one of these verses can be, ought to be, incorporated into whatever eschatological view you may affirm, there are certain things that these verses definitively mean. And if we think otherwise, well, it's our view that needs to be revised, not the language of Scripture. What do they mean? Jesus did not die in order to forgive the sins of a handful of people and then extract them from the field of battle. He came to win the war. He came to recapture the territory, cast out the enemy. It doesn't belong to the world, to the devil, to the godless. He came to restore the former goodness of creation and advance it to glory. So say the scriptures. Romans chapter 8. You might want to jot these down or turn in your Bible. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I was studying this passage years ago with a a friend, a brother, a mentor of mine, and as we were working our way through Romans chapter 8, he said, now whatever creation means here, we know it cannot mean the natural creation. I thought, hmm, that's strange. Because I thought, whatever creation means here, it has to mean, and at least include, the natural creation. Look at the context. Christians are referred to as the sons of liberty in this passage. So it's not talking about Christians groaning and longing for the return of Jesus. It's sure not talking about the demons. They're terrified of the thought of Jesus' second coming. We see that in his interactions with them in the Synoptic Gospels. Do you think it's talking about your unbelieving neighbor? They're groaning and laboring like a woman prepared to deliver a child just hoping that Jesus is coming back soon? No. And when Paul says that all of creation groans and labors eagerly waiting for the deliverance that will come with the return of Christ, he has in mind the same creation that was subjected to futility and a curse in the fall of man. And why was it subjected to futility? In the hope of the day when it would be delivered. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 The Apostle Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Look for new heavens and a new earth. Hmm. Well, that's strange. Because I thought that our Christian hope was to huddle behind the walls of the embassy and wait for the helicopters that are going to take take us away from the roof of the embassy as the zombie hordes are climbing over the walls and then we will all be disembodied and for all eternity we will be like Casper the friendly ghost strumming a harp and inhabiting an ethereal environment. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, that's that's an absurd idea. It is an absurd idea. It's also pretty close to the idea of the one hope that was communicated to me in the churches I grew up in. And I dare say some of you have heard something that's not too far different. Those who die in Christ prior to the resurrection will certainly experience disembodied existence in heaven. This is not soul sleep. No, one day Jesus will raise the dead bodily, historically, materially, until that time, the dead in Christ experience the comfort and glory of the face of Jesus Christ. And the ungodly dead experience the torments of hell that will be their lot for all eternity. But the Bible says that when Jesus does return and raise the dead, it is in order to make heaven and earth new. And whether this is a whole new creation from scratch, as some people think, or it is a purging by fire and remolding of the present universe, as 2 Peter 3 seems to describe, in either case, the saints will live forever 
on a planet, in the presence of Christ, in a whole new world. And the Bible describes this in a way that speaks of the strife of nations being at an end, where there will be a river and trees, fruit and fellowship, worship. And if the pre-fall world is any indication, and I think it is, there will be work as well. I remember as a child, eternity scared me a little bit, not just because I couldn't really imagine it. I hadn't ever encountered anything that was unending, and I still haven't as an adult. But also because, and I didn't want to say this out loud, you know, you don't want to be kicked out of the church when you're eight years old, but, but it seemed a little bit boring. I loved singing night, right? I loved getting together for hymn sings, but 10,000 years of a hymn sing seemed a little dull, At some point, you've sung everything in the hymnal 10,000 times, and you're ready to move on. But that's not what the Bible describes. Listen to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 to 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says, says Yahweh, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now again, depending on your eschatological view, there's more that you may want to say about that passage than just what we're saying here tonight. But at the very least, here's what you have to say about that passage. There is a description here of consummate victory. All the nations have come. And they are experiencing joy with Jesus. And the wicked, well, they are in a place of fire. And if you say, well, well, but this sounds very troubling because it sounds like the damned are visible to the saved, so says the scriptures. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. The wicked will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb for all eternity. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. We read this at funeral services, don't we? But listen to how material and earthly this hope is. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. The Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The world will be saved. It will be saved from the curse of sin. It will be saved from the presence of evil and from evildoers. It will be saved from harm, both natural and moral, that results from sin and the curse. Not every person who ever lived will be saved But everyone who lives in that world will be. Creation groans and languishes right now under the weight of our sin and our sinfulness. It pollutes our rivers, it diseases our bodies, it provokes rebellion in the natural world, including all kinds of disasters. And yet we know that these things won't be part of our life in glory, but many do not realize that glory will be in a saved world. This is our destiny, and it's not a pipe dream, and it's not a futile goal. It is a promise. Jesus saves the world. And so why do we walk around 
looking like we were weaned on a dill pickle. Why, of all people in the world, are Christians sometimes the sourest, most scowly, most cheerless, most discouraged people on the planet? You say, well, it's because we're realists. We realize all the sin and wickedness and rivers of water run down from my eyes because people don't keep your law. Yes, that's, that's good and godly sorrow. There ought to be a cheerful militancy that characterizes us. Just this transcendent hopefulness, happiness, because Jesus' plan does not fail. Jesus and his church is not being pushed back into the corner. Instead, Jesus is pushing the wicked into the corner. Remember the promise? What does Jesus say to Peter and his apostles? Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of the church will not in the end quite fall. They'll get some pretty big cracks and they'll be leaning pretty badly by the end. But, no, that's not what he says. He says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, now, who said anything about the gates of Hades? The gates of hell? Oh, Jesus did. But if we're talking about the gates of hell not being able to withstand, what are we saying? We're saying that Jesus and his church is pushing the gates of the city of man down. Remember this morning? The walls of Jericho are going to fall again. There's more that we could say about this theme. Let's sum up with this. A word of application. Stop despairing. Jesus saves the world. If you are living in your news feed, if you are living on your phone, if you are living on Tic Tac and Facegram and Instabook and whatever else, You know, you're subscribed to all of the news sites and you're just feeding your brain with this stuff 23 hours a day. Is it any wonder you've constantly got heartburn and a headache? Now, I have to confess, I'm a bit of a political junkie and a news junkie. And so I have to really regulate that part of my life. It's a struggle for me sometimes. I'm not saying that you should disconnect. I'm not saying that you should just completely withdraw. No, but I am saying that you should be spending as much or more time listening to God as you are listening to anyone or anything else. And that when you look at what's going on in the world around you, you should interpret it through the lens of the promises of Scripture and not reinterpret the promises of Scripture in light of what you think is going on. Things are getting bad. The church is about to be overrun. People are losing their minds. The end is near. Well, that's true in one sense. The end has always been near for the wicked. They're digging a pit, but they're going to fall into it themselves. If you're feeding your soul on what you see and read in the news media around you, it would be easy to feel discontented and discouraged and even despairing. It may seem as if the world and much of the visible church is in a state of irreparable and self-destructive pollution... And I'm not suggesting that things are going well, in one sense. I think it's pretty obvious that that's not the case. Western civilization does seem to have been handed over to foolishness. And we would know that. Why? Well, because we read about it in the second half of Romans chapter 1. And we have seen it play out again and again in the pages of Scripture and in the pages of history since Jesus returned to the Father's right hand. We know the end of these kind of stories. We know what God is doing. He told us before He began, I will shake all nations 
and only one kingdom that cannot be shaken will remain. When we despair in this way, when we become fearful or discouraged, we are using a scale of 5 to 50 years to evaluate the situation. I am not that old, the opinion of my children notwithstanding. I'm not that old. I remember a time when our nation seemed a lot more moral than it is today. Things change so rapidly, or so we think, and so in some ways they do. But do you understand that God is working on a scale of a thousand generations? So say the prophets. So say the Psalms. He's playing the long game. And you and I just don't understand how long that long may be. We may not agree on the nature of the millennium or the nature of the everlasting kingdom. We may not agree on the timing of Christ's return or the impact that the gospel will have on the nations before he arrives. But here is what we should agree on. Here is what scripture clearly says and therefore obligates us to believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Lord is shaking everyone and everything that is shakable. And in the end, the unshakable kingdom will remain. This is the Apostle Paul's new converts class. I don't know if you have a membership class here at Phoenix URC. You probably do. I dare say this may not be part of it, Paul addresses new converts in the region of Galatia in Acts chapter 14, and he says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Gulp. Welcome to the family of God. It kind of goes downhill from here. It's going to get rough. It's kind of like in Jesus' parable of the sower. The sower sows the word, and then the devil comes. That's what he says. And sure enough, it is. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Not I'm trying to. Not I hope to. Not maybe I will one day. Be of good cheer is a command. And it came from the lips of Jesus It's a command that I routinely transgress. I don't know about the rest of you. But it's a command nonetheless. And what's it based on? What is it grounded in? The fact. The fact that Jesus has overcome the world. If you're thinking, but things are really bad, they're not getting better, they're only getting worse, well, that may be true in America or in Western nations. We're at this particular moment, and it's a brief moment, because sinful insanity is self-destructive. And these kind of ideas do not last long. But it may be true at this particular moment in a post-enlightenment world, but right now the Christian faith is growing in South America and Africa and Asia. And I want you to imagine what could happen if communist China becomes a Christian nation. Can you imagine? If a godless government collapses in its godlessness and Christian magistrates rise to power. Now you may say, well, pastor, obviously you don't know much about the global church. So many of those churches, so many of those Christians, they have defective theology. Yes, they do. 
children often do when they are young. I dare say if we interviewed your children, they would get all of their catechism answers correct. And then if we asked them to expound on those answers, we would find out that they probably affirm all kinds of Trinitarian heresies and Christological errors and have all kinds of defective ideas in their ecclesiology. Children have kind of sloppy doctrine, but the project hasn't been finished, and it certainly has not been abandoned by our Lord. Be sober, but be joyful. Jesus came to save the world, and he has, and he is, and he will. Therefore, rejoice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together. Gracious God, we do thank you that you have not merely made salvation possible, but you have made salvation effectual. That you chose a people before the foundation of the world and gave them to the Son to redeem and that your Spirit will draw them all irresistibly into communion with Christ and that they will persevere in grace and by grace to the very end. Bless us, we pray. Give us gospel joy and gospel cheer. Give us hope in our hearts and courage in the face of darkness, knowing that the sun has risen and already the day has dawned. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.